49 and 50 is uh, where we're at today. And so if you'll turn first to 50, and if we'll read, I want to read from 12 to 21 for our scripture. Genesis 50 at verse 12. This is a son, th- thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we have done to him? And so they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before, charged before he died, saying, um, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sins, for they did wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And so therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted and spoke kindly to them. I was thinking as we get into these last chapters and we finish the book of Genesis today, of um, one of the things it speaks of is what we have in common. And we have so many things in common as people. We really do. It could be experiences that we have gone through or are going through in life, um, raising children. It could be work. It could be different vacations and on and on. We have emotions in common, right? Things like fear and joy and sadness and concern and hope. And we have, you know, our bodies in common. I look around the room and pretty much everybody here has a couple ears and a couple eyes and so forth. Okay, I won't point out those of you that don't. Um, But anyway, I'm just joking. And um, tied with emotions, but I don't think it's limited to it. Another thing that we have in common that it's where I want to head this morning and what I really want to minister to you this morning is this whole area of perspective. And we all have it in common. Um, It could be uh, the area of perspective falls into outlook or life lessons. I'm not sure what you call it, but it is something that all of us deals with and really regardless of age. It can be at times we deal with it in big ways and it can be all-consuming and it could be also just small ways um, on a daily basis. Someone, uh, a man, I don't know who it is, A.L. Todd said, we can complain because rose bushes bear thorns or we can rejoice because thorn bushes bear roses. And that's perspective, isn't it? You know, Um, and so it's how we look at things. On a humorous side, I like this about perspective. It says, in order to maintain a well-balanced perspective, the person who has a dog to worship him should have a cat to ignore him. (laughs) And I thought, that's good. Okay, and you know, you people that own cats, I know you'd like us to believe differently, but get over it. You have a very, anyway, I'm going to stop right there. And the problem with our perspective and what we all need to understand um, was stated clearly by a man named Anasis Nin when he said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And that is the truth right there. 
So, so often when our perspective isn't correctly correct, we aren't seeing what really is going on, but we're seeing as they are in our own mind. And so perspective is something that we share, be it good or bad, be it right or wrong. But when we speak of perspective and proper perspective, what are we talking about? It, It is seeing things a certain way or seeing things as they should be seen. And I thought maybe Webster's Dictionary would help us. It says of perspective many things, but the one pertaining to this way, it says it's a proper evaluation with proportional importance given to the component parts. I should have put that up on the screen for you to look at. But a proper evaluation with proportional importance given to the component parts. In other words, we are to have a proper proper perspective is to evaluate all the factors, all the information, all the details in a situation, and give them the place of importance that they deserve, all the while keeping your emotions under control. And so now you understand why perspective is so important and yet so difficult, isn't it? Amen? Come on, work with me here. It is, isn't it? And we all lose perspective at times. And hopefully, by the word, through prayer, uh, maybe you'll talk to me, maybe another brother or sister in Christ, uh, probably a home group for sure, um, you gain perspective back and you see things clearly. And so again, it's interesting. And as we finish the book of Genesis this morning, we have now our 39th teaching this morning, covering almost one year. Um, and I can't really think of a better way then to end this book of the Bible with a message that reminds us of the importance of maintaining a godly perspective. And you see, when it, when it, when you'll, you'll see when it comes out, don't you, there, in what I read earlier, that the brothers, their dad died, and now they're fearful that Joseph is going to seek revenge on them. And so Joseph's answer gives us, really, this is one of the greatest scriptures in the Bible, verse 20, you meant it for evil, evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. And what Joseph had that his brothers lacked was perspective. You see it? God-centered perspective. God had used everything Joseph was able to see for good that a people and ultimately a nation would come forth. And we read actually the counterpart of the New Testament. You know the verse in Romans 8:28. We know that God causes all things to work to good, together for good, to those who love God, to those who have been called according to His purposes. So the message in the beginning of the Old Testament and as we are getting to the end of the New Testament in the book of Romans is the same, that God is working for us and working things for our good. And so is there any of us that doesn't need the reminder, always seek to see things God's way? And everybody said, amen, Amen, of course. Now, to finish the book, we're going to go back to Genesis 49 because we want to hit this chapter. And I know it might be a little dry, but let's hit on it. And let me kind of give you a little bit of a history lesson here um, that we can understand what it's about. Now, most of your Bibles will title the chapter with something like the prophecies concerning his sons or Jacob blesses his sons, something close to that. And that's what this chapter is about. And so if you just scan down it really quickly in my Bible, I always highlight the names like that because I want to be able to see them. You'll notice from verse three all the way to verse 27, then you'll have a list of the 12 sons of Jacob. 
that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll note maybe that all of them aren't quite in order. So it's not this time in order as the way they are born, but probably the order as they stood around their father's bed. He's now on his deathbed, literally. You'll see this in a minute. And as he's about to die, he then has the brothers, his sons, all around his bed. And it's almost as if he starts with one and starts working his way down. And he pronounces really a blessing. Um, in some ways, it's not a blessing, though. He, he really will tell them uh, some things that he thought and tell them what is yet to come. And so it was a prophecy in one sense that these things would come uh, not in Jacob's lifetime and not in even some of the brother's uh, son's lifetime, but they would be coming to fulfillment in generations to come. Um, but on the other hand, it was also like verse 1 says, uh, what will befall you in the days to come. And so it was some words to these sons that this is what's going to happen to you and this is what's going to happen to the nations that come from you. And so again, he's on his deathbed. He gathers them and he wants to share these thoughts. So verse 3, uh, well, let's start at verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And so he starts with Reuben. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so Reuben, uh, being Jacob's firstborn son, the dad's hopes and dreams and everything were, of course, in that firstborn child. And it says at first he came forth in dignity and power. And that's true because there were no other children at this point and nothing else would have happened. But we know from our studies in Genesis that that did change as there came the time where Reuben then went in and slept with Bilhad, Rachel's maidservant, of course, who was Jacob's wife. And his life then became, like it says here, very much like uncontrolled water. And the word uncontrolled there, or your Bible might use the word unstable, literally means his life became like boiling over of water. And so Reuben, he lacked control in his life. And even though he should have then been Israel's leader as the firstborn son, as the firstborn of the nation, he gave up that right. And the tribe of Reuben never influenced the nation in any great way. And there was no prominent person that would come forth from the tribe of Reuben. The tribe became so insignificant that by Isaiah's time, when he cried over the land east of the Jordan, Isaiah 15, there is actually no mention of Reuben, only Moab to the south. And you might want to turn to the back of your Bibles, keep a finger there. You should have a map in the back of your Bibles that will show you the 12 tribes. And so as I talk about these, you could just visually see what part of the land that they occupied as well. Well, then he goes to Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so Jacob never forgot what these two sons of his had done when they came, when they came back uh, uh, into the promised land. They had, of course, their sister had been raped, you'll remember. And so they took revenge, not on just the one who had done it, but they took revenge on the whole uh, city of Shechem. 
um, under the pretense of entering into a treaty and we'll be a people together. They then did what? They showed their anger and not just anger. They showed their cruelty. And, and so they had embarrassed the family. They put the family in danger. And Jacob is saying, you are my sons, but your actions are your own. And I will have no part of that. And so they were, they would be dispersed, it says in Jacob, scattered in Israel. And that means they would eventually, these two brothers that had the same mother, would be scattered throughout the land. They would be separated finally in their life. They would be all throughout Israel. And at first, Simeon, if you're looking at your map, was down in Judah, a part of Judah, if you will, surrounded by Judah. Um, but in time, most of it, uh, of, uh, Simeon was assimilated into Judah or scattered outside of Israel. And really, we hear little of them after uh, King Asa. And so then there was Levi as well. His tribe, by God's grace and by God's will, did not receive a portion of the land. You know why the name Levi. That's where the Levites would come from. But God instead gave them 48 cities throughout the land. And so they redeemed themselves in a sense. It really was God's grace. It wasn't what they did. But they did redeem themselves, as we'll see as we're going to start the book of Exodus this Wednesday night. As they are in the wilderness, they will stand up against idolatry in the days of Moses and stand up for what is right. Moses was a descendant of Levi. And they, as a people, were chosen then to be the priest among Israel. And they went on to do that. It goes on to Judah, verse 8. Judah, your brother, shall praise you, Jacob says of him. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. For the prey, for the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine, his robe in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. And so Judah would become one of the most preeminent nations or predominant tribes succeeding in warfare with the words your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy and they were a fighting people successful Judah actually means praise and the other nations would come to praise Judah for Judah's strength and Judah's victory that they brought um, I, Israel's early leaders were Moses of the tribe of Levi Joshua came from the tribe of Ephraim uh, Gideon came from the tribe of Manasseh Samson from the tribe of Dan Samuel from Ephraim, and then Saul from Benjamin. And then finally David would come from the tribe of Judah. And from that point on, they became the leading tribe of Israel. Uh, Henry Morris says, as Jacob was to receive the double inheritance of the firstborn, so Judah would receive the patriotic, patriotic, I'm not going to get it out now, dominion and responsibility of the firstborn. He was as strong as a young lion, that has over, overwhelmed and eaten its prey as secure as a mature lion resting in its den with no one which would, whom no one would dare to rouse. And the land of Judah was a prosperous land. It became a very productive land, a very fruitful land. 
Henry Morris goes on and said, Once the tribe of Judah under King David attained leadership over the nation, the scepter, that is the position of leadership in the nation, never departed from Judah until after Christ came. The kingdom was divided, and later all the tribes were taken into captivity. But as far as Israel itself was concerned, Judah was always the dominant tribe. And of course, you know, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. The Messiah, Christ, would come from that. Revelation 5, 5 and 9 tells us, Stop weeping, behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased from God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so Judah would become the prominent uh, tribe. And of course, Jesus would come forth then from this tribe. Next would be Zebulun, the two brothers, Zebulun and Iscar, verse 13 through 15. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Ishkar is a strong donkey lying between uh, the sheepfolds. And when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave of forced labor. And so Zebulun, it's interesting, I don't know what to tell you this, I'll just tell you it. Zebulun never did become, um, in a sense, a, a coastal thing. If you look at your map, Zebulun is in between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. They were surrounded by land. And so um, they never lived on the coast, but it's believed they either benefited from the sea trade or they worked in the sea trade, the people of Zebulun. Ishkar mentioned as a strong donkey spoke that they would be a working people as to a political people or something else, and their portion of land was fertile. Farming was what they did, and the, but they were a passive people, and in time, as it says here, they would become enslaved to others. And then Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtala, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a, servant in the, a serpent in the way, a, a horned snake in the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his riders fall backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Um, As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal uh, uh, dainties or delicatessences, things it is. Naphtala is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. And so Dan did judge Israel for a time under Samson. Samson judged for 20 years, and this is a tribe that he came from. Being called a serpent in the way, it either referred to the fact that they had the ability to defend and attack their enemy as they were fierce fighters of a people, or they lacked the moral commitment and spiritual stability as they would be the one that would set up one of the two golden calves in Israel, and the tribe of Dan would introduce idolatry into the land. Could be that's why they aren't mentioned in the list in the book of Revelation. Gad, staying east of the Jordan, was constantly attacked, but you would think they would fall apart or be gone, but they weren't. They did triumph. Asher did have very fertile lands, and they produced a great amount of food. And with the words, he will yield royal uh, dainties, they may have been the ones that produced then uh, wheat and oil for King Solomon and King Hiram. Uh, Naphtala became great fighters. And from them also came elegant speech and other maybe songs or poetry and these things. And then the last two brothers, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph is a fertile bow. 
uh, bough and a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm. And his arms were agile uh, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the, for, from the God of your fathers who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessed, uh, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast on, uh, and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound um, of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravished wolf. In the morning he devours praise and in the evening he devours, divides the spoils. And so, of course, we've been studying Joseph now for weeks. You know much about him. Incredible character. Truly a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, but he, had, he would be blessed as he already had been blessed. He had great character. He had incredible influence. And he'd come to continually grow and prosper in the days ahead. And his line would experience a military conflict coming from their successes, but they would triumph and they'd continue to grow. Uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, they became a warring people. That's why Jacob says they were like a ravenous wolf. Uh, Jonathan, who had great skill. You'll remember David's uh, friend, Jonathan. Um, He was incredible with the archery and the tribe of Benjamin was that way. And, uh, and so Jonathan came from that. And Saul was a Benjamite um, as well. And the Apostle Paul, when you get into the New Testament, was a Benjamite. And so Jacob, he gives this blessing to his sons. And again, in some ways, not a blessing. He kind of rebukes some of them, tells them for the first time what I think of you and what some of the things you did. And sadly, um, and yet he's a man of God, he'll be honest to the leading of the Lord. He is truthful. And he tells these boys what's going to happen to him. And so then verse 29, he says, Then he charged them and he said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Uh, Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. And it goes on and talks about those details. And then verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed. He breathed his last and was gathered uh, to his people. And so... Um, incredible thing, isn't it? As he blesses them and then um, he just um, almost on cue um, passes away and does that. And so verse chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face. Of course, he just died. He wept over him and he kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it. For such is a period required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to his household, the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Thou, now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And so Joseph went up to bury his father. And he went up with all his servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph. And so you see how honored Joseph was for what he did to Egypt, saving Egypt. And those elders of Egypt wanted to 
show respect as well. And so all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they went only uh, their, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshold floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it is named Abel Mizraim, which is before the Jordan. And so going back then, really to the time when at 17 his father had given him the coat of many colors, we know that Joseph and his father had a tremendous love for each other. He was his favorite son. And when, we, when, when Jacob, Jacob's love comes out, uh, when um, his grief, when he's told that Joseph has been eaten by a wild beast, and of course we saw Joseph's love come out for his father when he finally arrived in Egypt as he wept for a long time. And so now, as his father dies, he falls over his father. There's weeping, there's kissing, and uh, it's an incredible scene. And I thought, you know, that's encouraging, isn't it? Because we understand those emotions in death, don't we? And nothing's wrong with that. It reminded me, of course, when my own father died, and that was a grievous time for me, uh, having so much love for him, having still so many hopes and dreams of where our relationship might still go, and yet the Lord took him home. And there was times for a long time where I would have a, I have a picture of him in my study, and I would just think and I'd miss him and I'd cry over him. And of course, so that's what we see Joseph has done as well. And notice um, how striking, even almost staged, his death is. He draws his feet into his bed, he breathes his last, and he passes away. It's almost as if on cue, he knew what was going on and that God was saying, this is your time now, take care of these things. And, uh, and maybe um, um, the Lord led Moses to record it this way that we might uh, all these years later then take note that he died first of all with great peace and he was completely satisfied with the grace the Lord had shown him and of course when we die we can have that same peace and that same grace and so it's a beautiful picture isn't it as he just is at peace he says his last words to his family and he's taken home to be with the Lord and so we go on in uh, uh, at verse 15. Um, well, let's pick it up at 12. And thus his sons did for him as he did charge them. And so this incredible procession must have been an amazing sight when they brought uh, Jacob up to the land to be buried. And so they did that for him. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site for Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph then returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And so they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did wrong, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father and Joseph wept when they spoke to him then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but Joseph said to them do not be afraid 
for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And so therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones and so he would comfort them. And he spoke kindly to them. And so the brothers wondered, does he have a grudge? Has he just been holding that grudge in place until dad finally passed away? But they misjudged their brother. They misjudged the character of their brother. You ever been misjudged? It's probably one of the hardest things is when your character is misjudged, isn't it? You know, sometimes we are misjudged and rightly so, but this and that. But when you know where your heart is and when you know what your character is and you are still misjudged, that is one of the most difficult things. And that's what the brothers had done. You know, whatever they had done, um, um, Joseph had really been able to let go of it a long time ago. And so they had uh, changed. But being human, once again, for at least just this one time, they resort to their flesh and they make up a lie saying, Joseph, there's one thing Dad wanted us to tell you. You know, but that really didn't take place. They're just afraid. And so um, the content of the lie, notice what it says there. They were wanting forgiveness. And I thought that was interesting because it does reveal what's inside these brothers. Um, what they wanted more than anything else was to be forgiven. And I think that's still the cry of mankind as a whole. Mankind is crying, whether he realizes it or not, that we, we know we are sinners and we know we need forgiveness. And so we see that in the brothers. That's what they want. They want that forgiveness. And notice with the words transgression and the word sin and the word wrong, the brothers um, admitted this and they'd come to see so clearly they had changed that they were guilty. And to this day, again, mankind still has that need to be forgiven. And so they made up this lie and, um, and they uh, came to Joseph trying to make sure that he wouldn't take revenge. Um, and this is where then we start to see the perspective. And so their perspective, of course, was wrong. They thought that Joseph had kept a grudge, would keep a grudge, and now would get even with him. And he had the power to do so. But in reality, Joseph, there was no grudge. He wasn't going to get even. He had forgiven them. And in fact, more than forgiven them, he loved them deeply you know, with the words saying, don't be afraid. And it's a powerful picture. Only Benjamin is younger. Joseph would be the second youngest. So here's all these older brothers. And yet Joseph now is really the one with power and everything else. But it's an interesting picture, isn't it? Any of you that are in leadership, don't miss this picture here. Because here is a powerful man. And yet his power hasn't gone to his head. You know, He understands where it came from and he's fine with it. And he doesn't worry about it. He doesn't push it around. And so what was Joseph's perspective? It was the correct perspective. Verse 19, I am in God's place. Verse 20, what he says there, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people. The translation is this, you did what you did, you brothers, out of evil, but God used it, turning the evil situation into a good situation and what we see today, so that what we see today could happen, that a family, our family, has been saved. And a people has been preserved. And so what does he say? Verse 21, don't be afraid. I'll continue to provide for you. I'll continue to provide for your families. And they were comforted and spoke kindly to him. And see, proper perspective always brings comfort and peace and kind and encouraging words. And so what a powerful story, isn't it? As, as we finish this thing up, 
And we realize uh, the poor brothers and all they were going through still wondering what was going to happen. Uh, Joseph, a long time ago, um, saw God's hand in what he had gone through. And so think about it, you guys. He had been betrayed. He had been thrown in the cistern. He had been sold off. He made it to uh, Egypt. He was raised up in a sense in Potiphar's household, but then falsely accused and thrown into the prison. He was left in the prison for a long time. The cup baker and the the cup bearer and the baker uh, failed to say anything, or at least the cup bearer, the baker, lost his head. And uh, but in God's time, he's brought out. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's raised up. God gives him a way to save the nation and all the surrounding nations of storing up for seven years of plenty when the seven years of famine came. And so now he says, listen, guys, I hold nothing against you, man. I finally realized this thing was even bigger than me. And so this is what God had done. You meant it for evil, but God has brought good from this. And so um, it goes on, verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Um, Joseph saw the... By the way, uh, Jacob was 147 when he died, 130 when he came into Egypt, and he lived 17 more years, as we pointed out, I think a week or so ago. But anyway, Joseph now, he dies at 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Mekur and the sons of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's uh, knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land... Uh, to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so Joseph now makes sure that his brothers understood what was going on, that God will take care of you. So important, see. He reminds them of the promise that had come to Abraham, the promise that had come to Isaac, their grandfather, Abraham being their great-grandfather, and the promise that had come to their own father, Jacob. Remember I said last week that the Lord didn't speak this to Joseph or to the other brothers. The patriarchs, that's why the patriarchs are seen as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God spoke to them and says, I will give you a land. I will make your descendants as a sea, uh, the sand on the sea. And so now Joseph wants to make sure that his brothers understand that and that God will take care of them and God will bring them out of this land. And like we saw last week, where um, kind of an obscured thing Jacob is listed in Hebrews 11. Here is now why Joseph is listed in Hebrews 11. You'd think, oh, there's so many reasons Joseph was a man of faith, but it's really Hebrews 11:22 when it says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave order concerning his bones. And so this is why Joseph gets listed. Why? Because he believed, just like Jacob did, God will take us back to that land as a people. And for that, God says he was a man of faith. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And those of you that are just, you know who you are, my weird little uh, people, the, the, you guys that just like those weird things, the word for coffin there, is the same exact word that is used for ark and it could and the ark of the covenant so you know who you are you like those little things and you'll run with them and so i just wanted to give that to you um but again 
the book of Genesis, it, we finish it now with this incredible uh, life of Joseph. You know, the book of Genesis started with incredible glory, if you will, as God created the earth. He created man. Remember what he said? Can you remember all the way back to Genesis 1? And it was good. Amen. It was good. There was only one thing that wasn't good. You know what it was? Come on. The man was alone, you see. And so, of course, he created woman for man. But that's what we see, this incredible picture. John Davis says the earliest, the earliest earth was a divine masterpiece. But then sin entered in, and Genesis ends not with a man in a beautiful garden, but a fallen earth with this great man of God dead and now in a coffin. And it's a reminder of the effects of sin and of our depravity as mankind. But notice again the words of verse 25. God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. But those words, God will take care of you. So death, yes. Sin, yes. But in Christ, the Father has taken care of this. And we too can have that assurance that Joseph had that the Lord will take us home. And so again, do you have a rose bush that bears thorns? Or do you have a a thorn bush that bears roses? See? Do you see the Lord in your life and you see Him in what you are going through? So that's what I want to leave with you this morning as we close. What's happened in your life? What have you been through? If you're like me, you've been through a lot. Many things have happened in your life. And unfortunately, they haven't all been pleasant. There's been a lot of pain. And yet the the challenge is, Lord, help me to see that really... But at the time, and maybe even still, seemed like an evil thing, you're actually working it for good. Last night, my wife and I were out late at a wedding, and so we were driving home almost at 11, all the way from North Bend, and uh, we were talking about some stuff. And I just said to her, I said, but the challenge is, and I didn't tell her what I was teaching on, but I said, the challenge is to try to see what God is doing in the things that we are going through and that we have gone through. What is His perspective? How is He working it for good? Sometimes? No. What does Romans say? God works all things for the good of those who love Him. So God's in the business of shaping you, molding you, shaping me, molding me, shaping us as a church. And it's an incredible thing. And so where do we go from here? Well, Wednesday night, let's get out of Uh, Egypt okay and we're going to head into Exodus and we're going to get out of Egypt and we're going to watch this little nation Uh, it will by then have grown and God will say enough of that the 400 year period will pass and God will then pull them on out and fulfill what we've been studying for the last several weeks but may God encourage you guys this morning would you take um, those things that you might be facing right now and start to pray and ask God to show you what He's doing, what His perspective is. Remember, He will take care of you. Not maybe. There's no doubt He loves you. He loves you in Christ. And He will take care of you. He is watching over you. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to get your life to the point of where He wants your life to be. And that's an incredible promise and encouraging thing. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.